some of those thoughts that we have, the I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough, I'm not strong enough, I eat too much, whatever it is, to write it down, right? Just literally write it all down. And to ask yourself, do I have to hold this thought? Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. Welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. Today's guest is Sylvester McNutt III. He's an eight-time best-selling author, and his passion for living a life of freedom and truth is contagious. He's a best-selling author, podcaster, public speaker, course creator, and teaches people how to transform their mindsets through self-awareness and healing practices. I believe he's one of the top thought leaders out there. He's a master of words and also a fear and anxiety expert. He's just such a grounded dude, deeply soulful, and we're just blessed to have him here on our show today. So welcome, my man. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Humble to be here. I've actually listened to some of the episodes and it's just, man, it's just a wonderful platform you guys have created. And I'm so proud of both of you for coming in and creating this platform and creating this space. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you you were a no-brainer, man, the way that you show up and your words and your light. So we were on a mission to get you on here. So we want to get right into your story. And we just want to understand from you, what was growing up for you like? In one word, colorful. It was very colorful. So my dad was in the army. My mother and father were together when when I was born. Uh, And we got to move around quite a bit. Lived in San Antonio, uh, Texas, Rockford, Illinois, Chicago, Illinois. We basically moved. We lived in apartments. And every time our lease was up, we moved. Uh, So it was really, it's really interesting having to adjust every year, making new friends every year, learning new cities, new streets, new environments, like every single year, just always being in like a different space. I'm in a space in my life where I can appreciate the dualities of myself, of people I've known. And so I recognize that my father was an amazing teacher. He wasn't the best leader. My mother was an amazing teacher. She wasn't the most nurturing mom. And so with, with that, those stories are super colorful. So my mom would be, hey, take care of your grades. You need to study. You need to read. You need to learn. But she wasn't really giving me that motherly love that I really needed like to be held and nurtured. And my father, this dude was a poet. You know, this dude was super poetic. He passed away a few years ago. He was super poetic. So he could see the silver lining in anything. He would see any, you know, like any coach, you know, he would be able to tell you a story on demand, on the spot and be able to extract a lesson out of it. But then I didn't really get that example. Like my dad, I never knew if he had a bad day or not. I I never heard those words from him. Hey, son, I had had a rough day today. Never. And granted, growing up in the 80s and 90s, our parents didn't really have that language and the framework that we have now. You know, I never saw my dad be vulnerable ever. All I saw was his Superman shield. So it was very intense. And then both of my parents, they used to work like early on. They worked. They were in their careers. My dad was a chef, but he was a head chef. He was a manager, became a dietitian, became, you know, the leader of the organization. And my mom was working as an administrative assistant, obviously very smart, organized, punctual. But there was this amazing shift that happened around the time when my brother and sister were born where the family dynamic and the family system changed. Like it changed completely. It went from two-parent household, happy and healthy to what the fuck is going on. That's when the violence came in. That's when the physical abuse came in. That's when the alcoholism came in. That's when the cold shoulder came in. That's when the manipulation came in. And so for me, 
as a consequence of the change in the house. Obviously, you don't understand it as it's happening as a kid. You're aware of it. And I was a very intuitive person. I'm a Virgo and I'm just very, like, very intuitive to my surroundings. So I'm sensing the changes, but I'm not really, you know, I don't have the language. I'm not really sure how to describe it. And so my very first coping mechanism was to play sports, to play football, and then to journal. So I used to journal. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how I got my first journal. This is like super important story for my life. So my parents, we were lower middle class. We didn't, we weren't poor. But if I wanted extra, there was no such thing. You didn't ask for extra. You didn't ask for expensive gym shoes. You didn't ask for concert tickets. You didn't do any of that. You went to school, you came home. And I just felt like my body needed to get this energy and these emotions out of me. And I didn't really know how to. So what I did was I went to the 7-Eleven by my house and I stole an, a college rule notebook, 80-page notebook. I just stole it. I slipped it in my jacket and uh, was walking home from school that day, stopped at the, the, the little park right by my house and I just started writing. And what I ended up writing was journals, uh, songs, poetry. I used to draw a lot of football plays because that kind of helped my mind just meditate. And so really my very first two coping mechanisms was just the outlet of sports and journaling. So like when I look at my life, like, I'm so grateful for the experience because it, and this is me finding a silver lining. I'm grateful for the experience because it did launch my, my deepest curiosity and it launched my career and it launched my voice that helps other people. Sounds like kind of that turning point, the shift when the alcoholism and the abuse came in. Can you walk us through like maybe a specific early memory of pain that you had within those times? My dad calls me into his room. And so my dad had this, the, the way he decompressed from his workday is he would come in from through the front door. He wouldn't say anything to anybody. He would go straight to his room and he would always have that brown bag. And that brown bag was for him, it was Jack Daniels or it was some type of beer, just depending on the day. He'd go in his room, he would close his door. He'd be in there for, you know, as a kid, you don't really have a strong sense of time, but I would say two hours. And then when his door opened, it was like Russian roulette. You didn't know, you didn't know who was coming out. It's like, uh, for any, any of the video gamers here, if you guys ever played Madden before, if you hit, you know, you can call your plays. If you just hit, ask Madden, Madden to call the play for you. That's what it was like. You didn't know what dad was going to come out. So one day he comes. And he's like, hey, uh, come in my room. I say, okay, yeah, sure. I'm a kid. I think I'm a preteen at this point. So I go in there and he goes, close your eyes. Okay, yeah, sure. So I close my eyes and about 10 seconds goes by and he says, okay, open your eyes now. I open my eyes and he has his pistol loaded and it's in, in my face, in like right here. And you know, in the movies when they always parents are like, oh, I brought you in this world. I could take you out. And it's kind of, you know, like this type of, that's the type of parent. Like that was my dad. He was that person. I don't really remember his message. You know, that was the first moment I felt like I faced death. You know, it's because of my father. I don't remember what he said to me. I don't remember what his message was. I just remember that moment. And I, I remember just being heartbroken because it's like, man, like I can't trust you. I can't trust you. And my mother was in the house when this was happening. So that's when I really just developed a, a deep distrust for my parents. It was that moment. 
I even heard a lot of in the beginning where you talked about how you, you move from place to place. Once a lease was up, it was like on to the next place, which is, I hear a lot of instability. And also from the not trusting and being afraid of your parents. But like, how did that show up for you in your early years, like outside of the home, in school, in sports? Yeah, the consequence of that is that I dealt with a lot of anger issues. So I was easily triggered, easily, easily triggered. And then any situation I'm in, especially as a boy, you, you guys know this, when boys, they talk about the way you look. They talk about your big nose. I used to get that big nose, big butt. My last name is McNutt. That's a funny name. So I used to get teased a lot, but I wasn't the type of kid that was going to take being teased because I was getting my ass beat at home. I was getting abused at home, but my dad was much stronger. My dad was much bigger. My dad had guns. So I, I didn't feel like I could fight back. But these boys, I'm like, dude, you're the same size as me. You're, you're about to feel this pain. So really my outlet for all the pain that I was taking in was to fight. And I had a teacher who said, hey, you need to stop fighting. It's not healthy for you. You're going to end up dead or in jail. And so my teacher is the one, that teacher put me on the sports. And that's how I got into sports. Instead of fighting, you can use that aggression, that testosterone and put it into sports. And so sports became my outlet. Weightlifting became my outlet. Track became my outlet. Football became my outlet. And through sports, I got a lot more discipline and understanding. We all have an immense amount of power in us. And yeah, we all have these stories where these type of things have happened. But we have to reach this point where you're more conscious of the consequences of your choices. And I knew that fighting was never going to give me the life that I wanted. It's powerful stuff. Would you say this teacher, we like to ask who was your first real teacher? Was this teacher you're talking about that person? And if so, what, what did they teach you? Yeah, I have some great teachers in my life. First my father, my mother, great. I mean, amazing teachers. Like I say, I see the duality and everything and I have to give them credit because they were great teachers and, and they set good examples. Not holistically, not everything, but there was some really good ones in there. There was another really great teacher. Her name was Barb Schmidt. She was my assistant principal in high school. My freshman and sophomore year of high school, I got suspended 42 days total and I was going to get expelled from school. I got suspended during finals my sophomore year. I wasn't eligible for the football team and I wanted to play football. So what happened was when you're supposed to start school in August, you need to be registered at a certain time, like that last week of August. So what ended up happening was my dad kicked us out of the house, all of us, kids, mom. So we had to go live with my grandmother. So I actually didn't even start school my freshman year until like November. So because of that, that made me ineligible for sports. So I'm mad as hell. Like I'm in school, I can't play sports. And sports was my outlet. Playing peewee football, that was my outlet. So I missed my freshman and sophomore year of football. And the sophomore year, I'm fighting. I get sent to my assistant principal. And this is like my 41st or 42nd day of being suspended. And I had a meeting. It was me, my mother, my assistant principal, the superintendent. And essentially, I had to beg for an opportunity to be at this school. And the superintendent was like, you know, Sylvester, you're very disruptive to my school. You're always fighting. I really don't see the point of keeping you in this school. This is a blue ribbon school of excellence. One of the top 100 schools in the nation. One of the top in academics. One of the tops in athletics. And you're just in here fighting. So what are we going to do with you? And this was my very first, as they say, coming to Jesus moment. I was 14. I was 14. My birthday is August 23rd. So I, I was always a year younger than everybody else in my class. So when I was a sophomore, most people are 15. I was 14. So they asked me, Mrs. Schmidt, she said, what are you going to do? Because I have to make a choice. I either have to kick you out of my school right now 
or something has to change. And I sat there with a minute for a minute. My mom was there, very stoic. My mom used to have her glasses down and she'd look over you at you over the glasses. And Mrs. Schmidt was sitting there and Mrs. Schmidt was showing me the nurturing, like motherly attention I needed. And I said, you know what? I've let a lot of people down with my behavior and I'm sorry for that. But I am going to make a change, but I need help. Here's the help I need. I need you to get me on the football team. And I can't, if I don't play football, I don't think I can do it. I need to be on the football team. Now, at the time, my football team, my freshman year, 0-9. <laughs> Sophomore year, 0-9. I mean, they were trash. So it's like, come on, help, any help, you know? So what ends up happening in high school is they let me on the team. And that was one of the best things that happened for me because the, the men on that team, they understood what I was dealing with at home. But they didn't let that be an excuse because they saw greatness in me and they saw the light in me. And they showed me a lot of love. They treated me like I was a grown man. They didn't treat me like I was a kid who was abused. They were like, hey, we see the power in you. And we're going to push you to it. Coach Hayden, he played football at University of Michigan. Coach Hayden, Coach Rick Split, Coach LePage. These are my high school coaches. They pushed me. So I got out there. Junior year was good. Senior year was great. At the end of senior year, you know, all the awards come in. We won a bunch of games. I won this award called the MSL Unsung Hero. And so that went, MSL was Miss Suburban League. That was my conference. And, um, you know, Unsung Hero just went to the person who, who just brought energy, who, who made a difference. That's honestly one of the greatest awards I ever won. Junior, senior year, perfect attendance. Straight A's, didn't miss school. Never late, never tardy, never missed practice. N- nothing. I completely turned my behavior around. The reason is because I had something to focus on. I had something bigger than me. For the first time in my life, like I had something bigger than my trauma, something bigger than my pain. You know, it was my team. It was my brothers. My coach Hayden, he goes, I want you to run track. And I was like, why? I don't want to run. Running is boring. <laughs> I don't want to run. He goes, well, you want to be a good football player, don't you? I say, yeah, absolutely. I say, he says, you want to play in college, don't you? I say, yeah, absolutely. He says, well, track is going to teach you how to breathe. You don't know how to breathe right now. He says, you just get on this field and you don't really know how to breathe. But if you want to play in college, you need to know how to breathe. I said, okay, man, doing track was one of the best and worst things in my life because the, the warm up was two miles <laughs> and I hated running. I hated, hated, hated running. But I did track and he was so right because they used to teach us how to breathe. They really t- would teach us how to breathe and how to connect with our breath. And that from the experience of running track is what later triggered me to get into yoga, to get into to breathing, to like really connecting with my body. If I would have never ran track, I would have never been interested in yoga. And so it was like, Sports saved me. And the whole time I was playing sports, I was practicing in my journal, just writing, writing, just writing, just writing, just just practicing. And then I did go to college and play football. So if it wasn't for those teachers and administrators and coaches I had in high school, I might not be alive. One thing that jumps out to me from what you were talking about is uh, being a person that's bigger than yourself. It took me a while to to feel that feeling. I can relate to you in, in being disruptive. For me, it wasn't Biden, you know, I was very timid, very shy, very sensitive. But for me, it was my substance abuse. It made me disruptive as far as not being available for my team or not representing my family or the institution that I was a part of because of my actions. And it all came from a place of self-centeredness. And it took me till 2018 when I first got to the Raiders, which was about like my fifth year 
being associated with the NFL to feel that feeling of, I don't want to let these people down. Whereas before it was, I couldn't form those relationships with those people because I was so disruptive and it made me want to put even more walls up in between us. So I couldn't have that relationship. But once you get that, it's an amazing feeling. It gives you energy and, you know, motivation, even when sometimes you don't feel like you have it on your own. So I can definitely relate to that. And it sounds like you had such a wealth of experiences before you even left high school that sets you up for having a great transformation. And you can hear that and feel that in the things that you write. But I want to ask you, what was the greatest moment of adversity that you faced in your life? Uh, up to this point. We have this platform here because we want to let people know that you can be successful but at the same time. Some of the greatest lessons you you gather are from overcoming adversity. So what was that moment or time like for you? And what were some of the emotions that you were feeling? There's many. There's many. I would have to say when my dad passed away in 2014, when you lose a parent, there's a sense of mortality that you experience because you recognize like, wow, my parent is dead. I'm definitely going to die. You know, you never really have those thoughts before because you're a kid, you're young, you're naive, you're just living. But when your parent dies and people you grew up with, your grandparents, your aunties, your uncles, even your peers that pass away, you're like, wow, this is going to happen to me too. So when my dad passed away, I was in a transition. I was leaving a corporate job that I was highly successful at, but unhappy at. And I was creating my entrepreneur, um, an entrepreneurship business, but I was in that transition. And You know, I needed $470 to fly back from Arizona to Chicago. I didn't have it. The $470 I had, I had to to go to rent. I had to go to my rent. And so my dad passed away. And I remember the only thing I could do was ask for help. One of the best things that ever happened to me was to be in that position where I didn't have enough money to bury my father. And uh, I called my cousin Tara and I told her the situation. And she wouldn't even let me explain. She's just like, hey, don't worry about it. I got you. So her and her brother owe me the money. They flew me back. And it was at the moment of his funeral where I'm looking at him in the casket and they, they had asked me to do a speech, which I didn't actually want, want to do, but I felt like I had to. I felt like I was called to do it. I felt like it was my responsibility as his oldest kid. And speaking was the career that I was pursuing at the time, speaking, writing. So it was like, yeah, your first gig needs to be your dad's funeral. Why not? It's not a paid gig, <laughs> but this is what better opportunity? So I really just like stepped up to the plate. I wrote this amazing speech and um, I feel like I transformed people's lives that day. I know for a fact I transformed my life because when I got up at his funeral and did that speech, I could just feel the hook. You know, as a writer, you always, you, you want to hook people in. As a speaker, you want to hook people in. I feel like I hooked everybody in and it wasn't about me. It wasn't about my speech. It was about healing them in that moment and helping them grieve their loss the loss of a son, a brother, a friend, a father. When I saw that I was able to heal these people, I knew that my destiny was to take that moment and to pursue that for the rest of my life, to figure out how to use my voice, my brain, my story, my words, my pain, my, my errors to help heal others. It's amazing how you know your greatest moment of adversity and your purpose can be linked you know, at the same exact time. And purpose being not you getting up on stage and everybody saying, look at Sylvester. Of course, you're great at what you do and things that you say speak for themselves. But the fact, like you said, sharing what you've experienced, what you've been through to help somebody else, that's really what purpose is. And I want to ask you, what has your journey been like since you 
found that purpose. I'm sure it hasn't always been amazing and just sweet and roses. What has that journey to becoming a speaker and using your experiences and putting them out to the public, what has that been like for you? Well, the very first thing that it helped me do is heal all of that trauma. It helped me heal. It helped me develop peace of mind. It helped me develop forgiveness. It helped me develop empathy. It helped me develop a lot of self-love and self-compassion, uh, loving kindness towards myself. It helped me understand my parents more and the, the generation that they grew up in and some of the things that they were up against that they probably didn't even have language for or, or the courage to communicate simply because of the stigma of their time. I actually feel bad for my mother and father because their generation, they couldn't talk about pain. They couldn't talk about what they were going through. There were no platforms like this. They couldn't just, especially as a man, be tough, get up and keep going. Like that's the language. And so I just feel compassion for them, you know, and that's why I don't hold them in content. That's why there's no hate in my heart. That's why I told you at the very beginning, I have such a duality because I get it. I understand. I'm a parent now myself. So I, I get it. It's hard. It's hard being a parent. I totally understand. And so since then, it's just been, it's been beautiful. It's been colorful, even more colors. It's been, I've been able to use my imagination. I've been able to ask questions. I'm so lucky and privileged. Like, I can't tell you how privileged I am to be able to go to college, to be able to learn from two of the smartest people I've ever met, to be able to travel different countries, to be able to meet different people. And I'm just privileged. I'm very, very privileged, very fortunate to be able to survive things that some people have not. I'm lucky. I'm blessed. I'm fortunate to be able to feel free spiritually, emotionally, financially from a health standpoint, like this, it's amazing. And the part that really makes me feel happy is to know that one, I didn't do it on my own. I've had plenty of examples. I've had plenty of help. And then the other part that makes me happy is to know that other people are also following my lead. You know, I just turned, I, I don't know what to call myself. I guess I'm sober curious right now. I'm five months sober from alcohol. Now, personally, I never felt like I was an addict or, or an alcoholic, but I just, I grew up in that environment. And then I had my kid and what happened, I'll tell you this, he was looking at me, I was drinking some wine and my kid's just looking at me. He's like, doo, 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 doo. and I'm like, yeah, this is some Sauvignon Blanc. This is some wine I'm drinking. And in that moment, I just asked myself, like, why am I drinking this? I couldn't answer the question. I could not answer the question. And the only real answer I came up with is I drink because other people do. And when I thought about that, I was just like, wow, like that's not really good enough to drink. And I'm not here to shame anybody who does drink. And I've heard both of your stories with your sobriety and getting clean, totally respected. I don't know where I am in my journey. I just know I'm five months in and I haven't had a drink. My birthday's coming up here on August 23rd. And I'm looking forward to my first birthday since I was 21 to have a sober toast with all my friends. I'm like really looking forward to that. So I would say that my journey is actually bringing me into a deep clarity as well, where I'm recognizing that sobriety from alcohol is also probably going to be the long-term solution for me. That's amazing. I, I, what I heard and what you just shared was just the, the power of questions, the, the, the power of inquiry, and also the power of presence, where in that moment where your child's looking at you, you're present, you're fully there, you're seeing it, you're not worried 
worrying about what's going on tomorrow or um, stuck in some scenario that happened yesterday, but you're present there with your child, then you were able to ask yourself that question. And in a sense, because maybe you know better, something's calling you for something more, at least for now, you are actually able to do something about it, which is so cool and so powerful. It's been pretty cool too, because several of my friends are now examining their relationship with alcohol. Simply because I just said, eh, I'm good. Never tried to force it on them. Never said, hey, you need to do this. Just I just say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And now several of my friends are like, yeah, I think I'm done. Four of like these are like my good core friends. Four of them. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm good too. Then you the change you want to see in the world, right? It's like through, through through your actions and not your opinions. And you know, I just want to acknowledge you because I've had multiple coaching clients who come to me, and and some of them it, it has to do with sobriety, where they're 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 over it, whether their life is completely spiraling out of control, or they just know it's in the way. And I've referenced your podcast where you talk about, I think it was day 83. I think that was the podcast episode where you're sharing you're in day 83 of your sobriety. But what was important about that was the proactive approach you took on when you chose to do this, that you reached out to your friends that drink and told them what you were going to do. So in a sense, you were clearing it on the front end. Handle, handling this on the front end so that if those moments come up, at least the friends that matter are not going to put you in that situation. And, and I just sent it off again yesterday to somebody else. And I just think that's so powerful to be able to set those boundaries. I know you're a boundary master. So it's, it was beautiful to hear that. And I know it's helped specifically like four of my coaching clients already. Thank you. The in psychology, that's called priming. It's like I'm putting a little lubricant on you and just getting you you wet. So when we start grinding those gears, they actually flow together. It's called priming. What would you say for you, like sharing your lowest points, but what was, we always talk about the only story that matters is the one you tell yourself, but what was the story that you had to stop telling yourself to really start to write and tell your own comeback story? Wow, this is interesting. So... While I was in my trauma body and dealing with a lot of trauma, my only mindset was survival. Get out of this. Like You got to work hard. You got to get out of this. This is not forever. I never accepted it. Ever, ever, ever. It was always like, come on, you got to make the football team. You got to make the grades. You have to move. You have to get the job. Uh, You need to apply at this job. You got to find a way. Like I needed to get out of it. So that was... I was just in a survival mode for at least until I was at least 23. I was just in survival mode. So here's actually what ended up happening is when I started becoming quote unquote successful, as they say, that started actually at my corporate job. You know, I'm top one or 2% in sales and I'm only like 25, 26. I'm top one, 2% in the whole company. That type of success brought me a lot of attention. I had the directors flying in to see me. They're like, Hey, what are you, what are you doing? How are you selling? What do you, what, you know, what, like role play with this? So I, you know, I had people coming in and asking questions and just noticing me. Then they put me in this program. I, I used to work at Verizon. So they put me at this program called Midwest Mobility and it was a leadership program. So they paid thousands and thousands of dollars for people to come in and to speak to us about leadership how to lead, how to teach, how to develop people. And I'm just in there soaking up all the game. I'm like, cool, I don't have to go to work. I'm just in here learning. This is amazing. So what happened for me is my trauma body mindset was push, 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 survive. But when I started becoming successful, I got really scared. I was really scared and I actually started to kind of self-sabotage myself. I was afraid of seeing money in my account. 
I was afraid of being noticed for doing good. I was afraid of being noticed for the success that I was creating. And so really, I think one of the biggest transformations I had to make is the transformation of accepting success, accepting accolades, accepting rewards, accepting you at the very beginning saying, hey, Sylvester McNutt III has done these things where my initial reaction is, hey, don't talk about me like that. Don't be quiet. Don't do that. I had to learn to accept honor and blessings and acknowledgement and gifts. I had to learn to accept that. I'll tell you a story that changed my mind. So I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. I used to walk to Sprouts every single morning at about seven. They open at 7 a.m. So I'm a bachelor living by myself at the time. And I used to live in uh, Fireside Apartments right over there. You know where I'm talking about Sprouts on Camelback by SAR Club. You're in Scottsdale. You know what I'm talking about. So I I used to walk there every morning and get my food for the day. You know, you're a bachelor, you're a single guy. You don't need a lot of food in your in your house. So I had just landed back from Los Angeles. I was dating a girl in Los Angeles, just landed back from Los Angeles, walking into Sprouts. And this grandmother, she's like, uh, excuse me, uh, hello? Now, as soon as I heard her, my initial reaction, and, I'm, and I'm, I have to tell this story, honestly, I'm like, shit, please don't talk to me. Please don't talk to me. Leave me alone. That's just the introvert in me. I'm like, please don't talk to me. Leave me alone. And she's like, Excuse me, sir, sir. And once once I just heard her energy, I was like, okay, she's putting some effort into this. I can't ignore her. So I turn around and I was like, yes. And she goes, I just need to let you know, you're a beautiful man. That outfit you have, it's gorgeous. You look so damn good. And the very first thing I do is I say, oh, well, these shoes, you know, I was just in Los Angeles. I got them actually at, at Old Navy. Or Levi's. They were Levi's. I was like, yeah, I just got these at, at Levi's. And this little thing is just something I got from H&M. I instantly downplayed what she said. She goes, shut up. This grandmother in the morning at Sprouts goes, shut up. She goes, when someone gives you love, you honor that. You don't justify it. You don't reject it. You don't push it away. You honor that love because you deserve that love. I don't know if she was an angel. I don't know if she was my grandmother speaking through her. I don't know if she was God. I I don't know if she was universe. That moment changed my life. When she said that, I said, wow. For the next two weeks, I just observed. A lot of people do this. Now, in psychology, the reason why is because of shame. Shame makes us feel small. Shame makes us reject love. Shame makes us go into the trauma body. When she told me to accept that love, it changed my life. So at that time, as I'm trying to transition, going back to the story about trying to transition into success, what I had to recognize was I needed to embrace it and honor it and be okay with it. I mean, I, I struggle with the same thing. Me being a self-sabotage master most of my life, now being in a place of success and people honoring me for my career, my performance, you know, whenever as quick as I can end the conversation about that, I want to just end that because it's like, I don't want to it feels weird. It's, it's scary to me for people to hold me in that regard and then start placing expectations on what I'm supposed to do or who I'm supposed to be. And it's just like, that's just not what I'm used to. I'm used to digging myself out of a hole or just trying to keep my head above water. This whole successful thing is like, it, it, in a way it doesn't feel right. And it's kind of like, I, I don't deserve it. So the fact that you spoke on that is, uh, it's definitely eye-opening because I do the same, same thing. I'm quick to, to downplay anything that you throw success my way because I think in my mind, it's like, oh, you know, I don't want to be in my pride. You know, I want to try to, you know, strive for humility. 
But at the same time, it's like, I'm also cutting myself off from that love at the same time. And I'm just now like realizing that as we, as you talk about it. I hear you. I understand. I align. And maybe this may work for you. What I try to do is take a pause and just really breathe and hear it. Like I try to actually hear what they say. And my initial response used to always be no, not good enough, reject, push, defend. And now I just try to respond by saying thank you, genuinely saying thank you. And I always look the people in in their eye. Whenever, if it's a face-to-face, I always look them right in their eye. Yesterday, I was wearing a really nice suit. Same thing happened with the dude in Trader Joe's. He's like, damn, bro, that suit looks great. I made sure to turn around and to look him right in his eyes and to say thank you genuinely. And it's such a simple practice that may offer you some value on your journey, brother. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I want to be in a position where I can be more you know, grateful for that love instead of fighting it or trying to keep it at arm's length because you know that's my natural thing to do is to keep people and everything at arm's length. But I'm grateful for that perspective. And on that note, I want to ask you, you've been successful in a lot of different avenues in your life. What would you say that you're most grateful for today? What am I most grateful for today? Man, it's got to be my little boy. My, my son, his name is Mason. He's a character, man. He's funny. So he's going through this phase right now where we're transitioning him from his crib to a bed. And this newfound freedom actually scares the hell out of him. We will put him in the crib and he will feel safe. He would just instantly go to sleep. He's like, okay, bye-bye. But now... We put him on the bed, and this is just as recent of, as the last two days. We put him on the bed, and we try to walk out the room. He throws the covers off, throws his little bear off, throws his pillow, and he's sprinting before we can even get to the door. And he's crying. He's like, no, don't leave me in here. We, put, we must have put, tried to put him down 10 or 12 times last night. And finally, I just told his mom, I said, look, uh, her name is Daisy. I said, look, I'm not doing this anymore. This boy is about to just fall asleep on me. So I just grabbed him, just laid on the couch. He just laid on the couch and he had his comfort blanket and he's just like playing with his little blanket. And then mom just laid on the couch and he fell asleep. And I'm just so grateful for it because I know there's going to be a time when he's bigger than me and taller than me and I, I won't be able to hold. Him. So he's, he's at this space where I can hold him, where I can comfort him and where I can heal him as he's learning life and as he's scared to sleep in his room now. That's the room he's been sleeping in for almost two years. Now he's scared because we changed the dynamic. So I'm grateful for this journey of fatherhood because it's really given me a full, like a full image of life. You know, it's getting me outside of just my story and just what I went through and just what I've seen. It's given me a whole nother way to see, see the world. One thing that's coming up for me as far as gratitude, Sylvester, is just the way that you are okay with pausing and okay with the silence. So I, as I'm watching you receive these questions, I know early on as a yoga teacher, it was almost like silence wasn't a good thing. And I just needed to fill the room with just continued talking instead of letting students be in the pose and actually experience it. In my mind, it was like, just keep dropping wisdom, you know, keep telling them anatomy type stuff in the poses. But as I watch you, it's just really cool to be able to watch you feel the power of the pause and be okay with silence. I just think that says a lot about who you are today and how you see yourself. And it's, it's inspiring to see. So I just wanted to, uh, to acknowledge that. Thank you. And you looked me in the eye when you said thank you. So 
That was, that was a test actually. You know, what's you know, what's wild is Darren was on this yoga retreat I had earlier this year. And at the end of the retreat, we'll have some people share their commitments to action or share kind of some wins, um, them talking good about themselves. And then at, when they're done, we will give them like a loud, like standing ovation or a loud cheer. And they have to stand their arms open. Right. But you can see how people just want to bail. They want to run. Like they do not want to stay up there. And it's just this great reminder is that we don't know how to receive acknowledgement. We definitely struggle to acknowledge ourselves, but even just acknowledging other people, the whole practice of acknowledgement just it fills both parties up that are in the process of it. But yeah, I think for me, I struggled with that too. And it just came, there was shame, but just a lack, it was a, a lack of self worth. Or if you don't, if your story is I'm not worthy or I'm not enough, then when somebody's telling you something, you will automatically deflect, diffuse, or reject it um, instead of just honoring it and receiving it. Yep, one hundred percent. One of the best ways to to do that too is to just get a journal out and some of those thoughts that we have: the I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not fast enough. I'm not strong enough. I eat too much, whatever it is to write it down, right? Just literally write it all down. And to ask yourself, do I have to hold this thought? Maybe you do, but maybe you don't. When you can see those thoughts and say it out loud, do I have to hold this thought? What you'll begin to recognize is a lot of the times the thoughts that bring you into those lower vibrations, but bring you into the shame, you actually don't have to hold them. Can you touch on, I know you design courses around boundaries and I've implemented a lot of that into my coaching sessions, how boundaries in a sense are, we teach people how to treat us. But I love that you actually have taken the time to carve out actual courses and classes on this. Can you just give us maybe the definition of boundaries, why they matter, how they can change your life or how they've changed your life? As human beings, what we seek is safety. So we seek in our relationships. We want to feel safe. And when we don't feel safe, we have reactions. We run from people. We break up with people. We stop talking to people. We stop interacting with people. The problem with doing those extinction level event things like cut you off, break up with you, never talk to you again, is that there's never opportunity for repair. There's never opportunity for healing. There's never the opportunity to actually take the connection deeper. And one of the best vessels for that is to have boundaries. Perfect example, as an athlete, we're all athletes here, is I, I love chocolate chip cookies. I love them, but I can't, I can't eat the whole thing. I got to have boundaries. Give me two or three of them. Don't give me the whole thing. You know, it's, it's, it's the same principle. It's trying to find a relationship where are boundaries. Let's say we're, we're going to have a tough conversation. Do we really need to spend three hours on the conversation? Maybe not. Maybe we can have a very intentional, very precise conversation in 20 minutes, right? So with boundaries, it's really about developing a framework that allows us to interact with each other in a vessel that's going to allow us to get to safety. That's really what boundaries are about. Boundaries are liquid. They're always moving. Boundaries is a dance. It's always, always moving. And what I would say, if, if anyone is struggling with boundaries, very first thing I, I will ask you to do is to recognize that boundaries is where I end and where you begin. You know, to recognize, like, I'm not responsible for your emotions. 
But I am responsible for my actions. I'm responsible for my emotions. I'm responsible for how I treat you. I'm responsible for what I say to you. I'm responsible for if I acknowledge you, if I ignore you, if I abuse you, if I curse at you. I'm responsible for all that. Boundaries is about personal responsibility. It's about ownership. Perfect example is today on on this podcast. We had a set time we were supposed to start at. And because of the fire drill I had, we had to start a few minutes late. I could have said, man, F these guys, F their time. I'll get there when I get there. Well, that's just a complete disrespect of the boundaries that you guys have, the time boundary, respecting your time and your energy. And that's not what happened. So what happened is I said, hey, this is what's going on. I I was very, very direct. I said, this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing. Can we just start a few minutes late? And you guys were like, absolutely. You know, boundaries is about respect. It's about respecting the environment. It's about respecting the other people. Boundaries doesn't necessarily mean you will always do right or this person will do wrong. It's not about that. It's just about always trying to respect the environment that we're in, you know, and having that personal responsibility. This boundary talk has me going back to when I was younger, when I was in high school and through college and through my early time in the NFL and just how I had no boundaries. And I felt like boundaries was blocking me from being the people pleaser that I felt like I had to be. Like if there was a boundary, that would be an opportunity for them to look at me as not good enough or not doing enough when I wanted to do everything. I wanted every avenue to be open for me to to please you or to be seen as adequate. Um, And so now like me trying to create boundaries in my life is a bit of a struggle because it's new and it's like foreign territory a little bit, but uh, it just had me reflecting on who I was when I was younger. And I want to ask you if you could share some advice or wisdom with a, with a young Sylvester, that one who was in high school just trying to fight his way through everything or the one in college, uh, whatever younger version of you, if you could kick him some wisdom, shoot him some game, like what would you say uh, to him? All younger versions of me need to hear, please stop trying to do it alone. And your life will multiply and go to every level you desire and can envision once you bring yourself to a community, honestly and vulnerably. If you only want people to see you as, there was this idea in my head when I was in high school and I was like, man, if I could just be a college football player, everybody loved me and liked me. Then I became a college football player. I didn't love me or like me. If I could go back, I would, I would tell younger versions of me to be in community. It's okay for people to know about your pain. It's okay for people to know about your failures. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. Doesn't make you quote unquote weak, as they say. Doesn't. The strength is in the full story. It's not just in the, the success. It's the full story. I have a follow-up question for Darren. When we're talking about boundaries and you know, showing up for your community, I recognize that, and I don't know all the storylines and details, so you may have to fill me in, but I recognize with your team, your profession, the Raiders, one of your teammates came out as a gay man. I'm wondering, because I played football, I've been in those locker rooms. I've heard stuff that doesn't need to be repeated, as I'm sure you have, as I'm sure you have as well, Donnie, being, being a baseball player. I'm curious what the temperature is like how you guys are supporting him, you know, his journey. 
and just supporting him as a teammate, you know, and as a brother. Yeah, it's been interesting since camp started. I feel like there's the whole schedule that we're on. I feel like a lot of guys are just going from the from thing to thing and, you know, not necessarily like trying to address it. But I do know I notice a lot of guys that are engaging with him in conversation like it's normal. Like because when I realized when he came out and, and, and said that, the first thought that came to my mind was, you know, today wasn't his first day as a gay man. Like this is his time and his process of revealing to the world, but this is who he has been and who he has been isn't changing just because he announced that or revealed that he's going to still continue to be uh, the same person. So who are we to treat him any differently? So I do notice a lot of guys that are not acting like it's different and making it awkward when it doesn't have to be. But at the same time, the whole stigma around it, especially being a macho man's game, such an egocentric profession, it is kind of an elephant in the room a little bit. But I do notice a lot of guys that are respecting him as a human being and moving forward and just treating him like, like a teammate because he, he's just being himself. Thank you. Thank you. We always like to end by, cause we know we, you said it earlier, you're not alone. We can't do this thing alone. So who for you in your life gets your comeback story? Shout out that person. That's just always been in your corner or changed your life with something they did or they said, who is that one person for you today? I have a whole team of people I could name. There's so many, so many guides, so many leaders, so many teachers, so many, you know, my auntie Brand let me sleep on her couch out of college, sleep in her basement rent free to, so I could get back on, on, on my feet. My cousin Jason always looked out for me, always tried to show me how to be a man. My cousin Tara loaning me money. My dad passes away being like that emotional support. My grandmother, when I was going through everything I was going through, told me my first tattoo right here. She said, you know, you're going to go through life. You're going to get knocked down, but you got to get back up and you got to stand strong. You know, my grandmother, you know, my father always telling me to never look down, keep my eyes up, keep fighting, keep pushing. My mother telling me that I need to be very mindful with the words I use because words are the most powerful thing in our universe. Daisy, the mother of my kids, like getting up at one in the morning, three in the morning, breastfeeding, just all the stuff she's doing to to try to raise a healthy kid, researching psychology, just everything she's doing as a mother to try to make sure that this kid has a healthy environment, which is the only thing I want for him is to have a healthy environment. Just, I mean, there's so many, there's so many. So if I, if I could pick one, I think it would be unfair to all the people who have saved my life. You know, my, my teacher, uh, Mrs. Schmidt, literally acted like she was my mom when she was just, quote unquote, my assistant principal. And she was showing up for me every day saying, Sylvester, you need to be better than this. You need to get better grades than this. You need to stop behaving this way. You know, and then 20 years later, when I do one of my public speaking events in Chicago, she comes and in front of a room of 200 people, we hug and we're crying together. It's, it's so, so many people who have believed in me, who have fought for me who have been disappointed in me, who have wanted more for me. It's, it's too many to name just one. I just have to thank everybody. Beautiful, man. We don't do this alone. And um, I think that's a beautiful reminder that we can't. We can't do this thing called life alone. If you're struggling right now, if that's the story you're telling yourself, that you are alone, that nobody understands, I can promise you're not alone. And, and 
people do understand. We do understand. That's the, the mission of this podcast is to remind everybody that you have a comeback story within you. And um, Sylvester, man, yours, yours is epic. Your, your way with words, there's just this deep soulfulness to you, profound wisdom. I'm just grateful to have connected with you. I'm grateful that you live here in Scottsdale and look forward to uh, keeping that connection solid, man. So where can our guests find you? Where's the best way to track you down? My name is Sylvester McNutt III. It's a very unique, funny name. If you type that in on the internet, you'll find me. If you're a podcast guy, I have the Free Your Energy podcast. If you like reading, I have that. Just type it in. Whatever you like, I'm there. I'm on all the social media platforms. I do keynote speaking. I'm here on podcasting as well. So if you want to find me in real life, hey, come to Arizona. Come get me. And uh, we can have a good time. We can catch a workout, hike, do some yoga. We can connect. Appreciate appreciate your time. Appreciate your energy, man. I know a lot of people will be moved by this, transformed by this. And I am myself. I appreciate, you know, who you are and what you brought uh, to this conversation today and what you bring to every space that you walk into, man. So thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Donnie. Last thing I want to say is this, you know, it's possible. That's my favorite speech from uh, Les Brown. He gave back in the 80s. You know, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are, you probably have a vision of escaping, recovering, healing. It's possible. That's it. Just think about your possibilities. You know, and another thing I want to say is the pain that you may be experiencing, you're not alone in it. You know, your pain wants you to isolate and it wants you to be by yourself. You're not alone. You are not alone. There, there should be no shame in telling your story. Grab your brother, grab your sister, grab your mom, grab your journal, whatever you have to do to get some of those words off of your body. That's all I want to say. And we'll be out on that. Beautiful words, my man. See you next week. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned. 